welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. Uh, a friend of mine gave me a unicycle. And her, her teenage son had lost interest in this, and she thought that maybe one of my grandsons would, would like to have it. So I, uh, you sort of see what's coming, right? So I took it home, and, and I thought, really, it's only right that I try this thing out ahead of time. Um, I had been riding, you know, regular two-wheeled bicycles most of my life. One that's only got one wheel must be half as easy to ride, right? <clears throat> well... I mean, the math works, if you think about it. And after one failed attempt, having my life pass before my eyes and certain death looming in the near distance, I gave it up, gave it to my grandson, one of my grandsons, who mastered it in like four seconds. And just like you do on a unicycle. You know, those of you who have unicycles, you know how that works. Um, Well, I've been thinking for some odd reason. I've been thinking about unicycles this week. and, And I think that... When we read the Bible, it's sort of good to imagine ourselves on a sort of literary unicycle uh, of sorts. Uh, You know, some people will sometimes read the Bible uh, and they'll look at these verses as though each one can be plucked out at random like like donuts from a box. Sorry about the donut thing, because that's all you're going to think about for a while (laughs) now, but it's just the metaphor that worked. Uh, but folks have gotten in a lot of messes over the years, isolating those verses and just running down the road with them. But on our little literary unicycle, we, c- we can work our way through our scriptures. We can turn on a dime. We can even go back and, and see why what we just read makes a whole lot of sense with the thing that we're reading now. And in this letter that we call First John, which was read to us this morning, John says some very interesting things about followers of Jesus and their relationship to something he repeatedly refers to as the world. And he says that those who have faith in Christ will conquer the world. Conquer the world. I mean, that is an incredibly bold claim, isn't it? Uh, I mean, it's especially bold in that the very first readers of this letter 2,000 years ago were hardly in a place to conquer much of anything, let alone the whole world. By the time the letter was written, Christians made up a a very tiny percentage of the overall population of the Roman Empire. So what was this whole business about conquering the world? Well, over the centuries, the idea that, that Christianity should be a conquering force, a literal conquering force, has resulted in actions that were disastrous and, and costly, especially in terms of human life. And even today, it's not uncommon to see the Christian church characterized as an army fighting against an enemy that must be conquered. And that enemy is usually some kind of cultural or or political force, as well as the people that represent them. And so it becomes really easy to envision Jesus as a warrior who is always fighting against the various cultures of the world. Or, Or at the very least, Jesus can be seen as the one who sends us to cast judgment and condemnation at the various cultures of the world. Now, once those kinds of views have been established, it's very difficult for somebody to come to grips with the possibility that Jesus might actually be present and at work in 
cultures, summoning his followers to join in with what he's doing there. So which of these things is John referring to in his letter? Probably none of them. In order to figure this out, what we need to do on our little unicycle is make a 180-degree turn and, and jump back to chapter 4 of 1 John, the prior chapter. John's been telling his readers that they have been harassed by people that he refers to as false prophets. And these are the ones who have gone out, he says, into the world. And uh, it may be that these people were originally part of the early Christian community, but they had taken their own show on the road, so to speak, and were declaring things about Jesus that were distorted and untrue, um, things that were distinctively, he says, anti-Christ, against Christ. And so John encourages his readers, and this is what he says, you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, referring to the false prophets. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They, those false prophets, are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Well, these false prophets that John's referring to very likely had taken the proclamation of the gospel and, and morphed it with, with some philosophical or mythical views that were borrowed from the larger world around them. And, and perhaps the language that they were using in their declarations was familiar enough to people that the message was at least interesting to folks, not like that crazy talk about a crucified Messiah that had risen from the dead and was now present to people. But John's encouragement is more than just taking a stand on some kind of theological superiority. He says that God, his heavenly father, is actually in them. And and that by his spirit, he is greater than anything that can be found in the world. They are not just a properly informed people. They are a transformed people. They were a people transformed, a people changed by the love of God and the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. It's quite clear in our scriptures that God's heart is for the world, that his people are called to be a blessing to the world, even calling others to trust their lives to Jesus. But God doesn't take his cues from the world or from the false prophets that have co-opted his message. So this, this conquering of the world is not about war, It's not about some kind of cultural domination. It's about conquering the voices that claim something about Jesus other than what the Holy Spirit, the spirit that is truth, confirms to us. In fact, the the Greek word in John's letter that's that's usually translated as conquer can also mean to be victorious in the the way that one is successful in winning a court case. Uh, You know, ideally, anyway, uh, a court case is won when the truth is properly revealed, it's accepted, it's received, that's the kind of conquering that John's talking about. So as I spin around in my own little unicycle in this part of John's letter, I start thinking about the people that John was writing to. I'm always interested in these audiences. They were probably a fairly small community of Christians, 
part of a, of a loose network that overall may have been made up of 1,500, 2,000 people. Nobody knows for sure. Uh, people scattered all around the Mediterranean basin. A really small percentage of the overall 5 million or so inhabitants of the Roman Empire at the time. So why would this conquering the world business even be important to them, even relevant to them? Well, I, I think it's probably important in at least two ways. First, it was important to them in their understanding about God, what God had done in and through Jesus, and what God, uh, and about God's intentions for the world, and, and about how those intentions were to be demonstrated in the life of the Christian community. And second, it was important to them in how they reflected the face of God to the people of the world. Uh, in, in their time, just like in our time, Many people rejected Christ because of, of distorted understandings about the nature of God. The distortions that were, were too often shown by ones actually claiming to be God's people. You know, several observers of the Christian church in America have noted that, that Christians are frequently viewed by, by people outside of the church and, and sometimes even inside the church as being more about what they're against than what they're for. Uh, now, whether that view is overall accurate or not, perception is very often the editor of reality, isn't it? If people perceive that to be a follower of Jesus is to become sort of sucked into a vortex of negativity, then, then that perception becomes true for them. So what we've come to believe about God is important to our own thinking and behavior, and it's also important as we engage with those in the world around us. So we conquer the world by not allowing our understandings about God to be twisted and distorted and manipulated in ways that reflect things other than Jesus. L let me offer an example about how this kind of thing can happen. Uh, several years ago, I was in uh, Caracas, the capital city of Venezuela, with a group of folks. And uh, we were wandering around, and we found ourselves in the town square where the president's mansion was. The president at the time was Hugo Chavez. And uh, it's a big town square. And across the square was the mansion of the mayor of Caracas. And they didn't like each other. Lived right across the street from each other, and they were arch enemies. It was awesome. And, uh, <laughs> and there was a lot of people doing political stuff, holding signs. There was all kinds of drama going on at the time. And... Uh, in front of the president's home, there was, a, there was an A-frame signboard set up on the sidewalk. And I went over and with my limited Spanish, kind of sorted through it. And there were posters and all kinds of propaganda and stuff. And I started reading this one document. And I noted that in that document, the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, were recast as entities that were embodied in the people of Venezuela. And... Uh, especially in those who are on the correct side of things. And the explanation of the Holy Spirit was really, really striking. The Holy Spirit was interpreted as the spirit of the Venezuelan people, a collective spirit that would soon rise to victory over all of the powers of evil, meaning primarily their political opponents. Uh, you know, that's just one example about how the gospel can become a work of the world. Uh, that happens all over the planet. It happens here in the United States in various forms. And, and those ways of thinking can sometimes leak into the life of the church. 
That's why keeping our biblical unicycles in motion all the time is important to us. And our journey should always take us to Jesus, who always shows us the face of God. And this Jesus, we're told, calls his followers friends. He says that they are his friends if they do what he has commanded. And what is that exactly? I mean, what what are these directives that Jesus has given? Now, when I was growing up in church, our church leaders would have said, well, Jesus tells you don't smoke, don't drink, don't dance, don't go to movies, and you'll be in good shape. But Jesus' commandments clearly go way, way beyond that kind of thinking. His commands, his directives are really a number of things. Things like, let your light shine before others. Go and be reconciled. Turn the other cheek when you get slapped. Offer your coat when someone demands your shirt. Walk two miles with the one who forces you to go one mile. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Proclaim the kingdom of God. Heal the sick. Make disciples of all nations. And of course, love one another. Now, that's just a partial list. There are a lot of other things as well. You can ride your little unicycle all through the gospel and see all kinds of things that Jesus tells his followers that they need to do. Um, These are the practices and the behaviors that characterize them as the people of God. They are not called to stand against the world or, by contrast, to be nothing more than an extension of the world. They are called to engage with the world in a way that demonstrates God's ultimate intentions for the world. And and these kinds of things very often will run cross-grain to the actions of the world, but they are also offered for the sake and blessing of the world. They're things that Jesus has made known to his friends because they are the things granted to him by his Father. You know, over the years I've heard people talk in in a lot of different ways about God, how God is, how, what God thinks, what God's feeling, what God's like, and all that stuff. And uh, a little too often, I've heard people talk about God as though he's just about two inches away from destroying everybody on earth because of their really, really dicey behavior. Uh, and he's a little bit cranky with Jesus' friends as well because they keep tripping over themselves and getting into lots of trouble. And it sounds like God is always just sort of like red-faced with steam shooting out of his ears, ready any minute to just rain his wrath all across the earth. But you know, if that's true, then why why did he give to Jesus the things that Jesus has given to us? Why is it that he has given us commandments that end up being life-giving and healing and redemptive for our sake and for the sake of the world. I mean, those things wouldn't come from a God who is fed up with everyone and ready to hit the destruct button on his cosmic computer. They come from the God who, in Jesus Christ, is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. They come from the God who so loved the world that he gave the world Jesus. You know, the earliest audience for John's writings would have been made up of people who had been formed by 
all kinds of, of cultural voices that had made claims about reality. Those of, of Gentile origin might have been formed in their early years by their belief in a whole pantheon of gods and goddesses and a, and a view that anybody outside of their belief system was nothing more than an atheist. The Jewish Christians may have been nurtured in a, in a context of ethnic superiority and cultural isolation that made them believe that Gentiles were nothing but unclean just by their very existence. But the commands of Jesus made effective by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, pushed through those formative forces to the, or pushed those forces to the margins and required an entirely new ethic that not only transformed Jesus' followers, but also offered a new way of living to the world. And those commands also served to silence the voices of those false prophets. You know, there, there really seems to be no end to the voices that are all around us, like all the time. Uh, Voices that are sometimes believed by people to be sort of prophetic in nature. Uh, Some of those voices are political. Some of them are religious. Our, Our online and our cable portals can flood us with all kinds of things that claim truth, yet often without any real substantiation and end up fostering fear and anxiety and anger in people. And we have to ask ourselves all the time, if we become immersed in those kinds of things, what's the effect on us? What does that do to us? Do do we allow them to form us in such a way that we end up orienting our lives around those voices? What are we actually experiencing within ourselves as we let those voices become our interpreters of reality? Now, while I am all for sorting out legitimate news sources and being as well-informed as we can about our world so that we can act as responsible people, our primary grounding as the people of God, as followers of Jesus, has to be in the commands of Jesus rather than in the demands of the political and social voices that are all around us. Those voices can become false prophets just as easily as any wild religious person making outlandish claims. Jesus' commands do not pit us against the world, but they do form us as a unique people who, gathered in worshiping communities, stand as outposts or or embassies of the kingdom of God. And, And these worshiping communities are to be places where the love that Jesus has bestowed upon us is the foundational ethic of our shared life. You know, once again this morning, we saw just as we did last week that, that Jesus calls his friends to bear fruit. And this fruit, in essence, is the demonstration of love. When we begin with love, the other voices of our world shudder and they move away from us. Because the love of God in Jesus Christ is the most powerful force in the world. That may be why Jesus was so bold as to say that that in bearing the fruit that is love, we may ask God for anything in Jesus' name and our request will be answered. You see, such love not only transforms our behavior, it also transforms our desires. 
Desires that are grounded in the love of Christ are very, very different from those that are formed by other forces. So what desires are within us that need to be spoken to God today? You know, there's a very simple song. Some of you will remember this song that emerged in some churches about 40 years ago. So it's an oldie. But it's a song that still resonates with me. It's one that has been sung all over the world. And it speaks of a desire that is grounded in the love that God has for us. And it goes like this. Change my heart, O God. Make it ever true. Change my heart, O God. May I be like you. Might that be the desire of our hearts today? Let's pray. God, we come before you today recognizing and acknowledging that we're always being assaulted by voices of all kinds. Not just media voices, but even the voices in our head that judge us and accuse us and voices from people in our past that have damaged us. And we say no to the dominance of those voices and we say yes to you and ask that you would take the desires that have been formed within us, desires that have been formed by all kinds of things and purify them even in this very moment. Will you take our hearts, take our lives, take the very breath within us and change all of that. Transform us by your spirit that we may see ourselves before we see ourselves as anything else, as your people as your beloved, as the friends of Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.